Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. We will keep in mind and remember that Barry Goldwater has faith in us. He has faith that you and I have the ability and the dignity and the right to make our own decisions and determine our own destiny. Thank you very much. Uh, That Dominic was, of course, Ronald Reagan giving what I think, and you would be the person who'd know this because you've actually taught this. Isn't this known as the speech? The speech. Yes, it is. Given in 1964. For Barry Goldwater, uh, the Republican nominee for president. So this was the moment that really catapulted Reagan onto the political stage. I mean, this speech was an absolute... I mean, Goldwater went down to a, a terrible defeat but is now often seen as the sort of herald of Reagan's brand of conservatism. But it was this speech that brought Reagan to the attention of uh, a lot of rich businessmen in California um, that basically won him indirectly the governorship of California and set him on the path of the presidency. And you delivered that, Tom, with all the earnestness. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I mean, you know, in so many ways, he was an old ham. And I I like that. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I identify with that. Yeah. So, um, we left uh, Reagan his his acting career in the doldrums, um, and I'd always kind of wondered, basically, how he got from his his acting career to becoming governor of California. Yeah. Uh, and basically, this episode is is all about explaining how and why. But at the end of the last episode, we left it on a particular cliffhanger, which was um, that he'd got divorced from Jane Wyman, yeah. who'd basically divorced him because she'd fed up with him endlessly going on about all the stuff he'd read in the Reader's Digest. Yes. Um, and he then played the town with a number of ladies yeah. who he called his cocker spaniels. Well, some of them, Tom, were quite young. Well, um, so there's some gossip columnist at some point says, we never thought we'd say this, but Ronnie Reagan is, is playing the wolf or something like that. Isn't that the expression they use? The old dog. There's life in the old dog yet. Yeah, but the thing is, he's he's almost what is he? He's almost forty, and he doesn't really like it, does he? Because no. he's uh, he's he's naturally he he likes to settle down with a good woman. Exactly, but he's sort of playing the field. He has a lot of girlfriends. Oh, uh, a young actress called Piper Laurie, who I think was eighteen, and then wrote a memoir in the nineteen eighties, saying, "Yeah, so that's very Leonardo DiCaprio behavior." Very Leonardo DiCaprio behavior, yeah. saying this was the first encounter she'd had with a man of any kind, and Reagan. Old enough to be her father. And, and was he nice? Uh, did she like him or did she think he was a perv or what? I don't think she was, I don't think she went into kind of immense detail about the encounter. Um, I don't think she was presenting him in a terribly bad light. Right. I think okay. now 
now that you know people are very down on Leonardo DiCaprio about his uh, yes dating patterns, aren't they? Yes. Um, but Reagan himself was. You're right. It wasn't really him. He wasn't a gigolo. He, no, he he was he was playing the field, but it didn't come naturally, should we say? Yes. And actually, that made him the perfect. You know, somebody is eyeing him up, and that is Nancy Nancy Davis. So Nancy, she had a gorgeous mother. Have you seen the photo of her, Edith Luckett? The- yeah, yeah, absolutely stunning. Actress. Yeah, because so often, you know, you, you you see photographs of women who are described as famous beauties. Yeah, in in period photos, and they do indeed men. Tom, we're very yeah. Uh, no, but I'm because since we're on the subject of of Nancy's mother, yeah. Um, but Nancy's mother, look, I mean, she's fabulous. Yes, she's a very appealing sounding person. Edith Luckett. Yes, she goes around doing her kind of stage shows and singing, and she's a great figure on the stage. And she has a um, <laughs> she, she marries a surgeon. She marries a surgeon called Loyal Davis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so we mentioned at the end of the last episode the names. <laughs> in the next sequence of Reagan's story are wholly improbable. I mean, if yes. you read them in a novel, you wouldn't believe them. No. So Loyal, Loyal Davis. Davis. Loyal yes. Davis. And and actually Nancy is not Loyal Davis's daughter, but she adopts Loyal Davis's name, doesn't she? She calls yeah. herself Nancy Davis. And she's a debutante. She's so she's from a very different background from um Dutch Reagan, uh growing up in his sort of fairly impecunious uh, small towns in the Midwest. She is a debutante in Chicago and she goes to Smith College, one of the seven sisters, this very sort of fancy um, women's college. And in her senior class, do you know the, the, the part she played in the senior class play? Uh, uh, Titania. No, she played the wife of a president of the United States. Did she? Yeah. An imaginary president or a real one? An imaginary president, I think. Right. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't go in, I didn't dig down that deep. Okay. And and she wants to be an actress, doesn't she? Like her mum, because her mum's very famous. Yeah, but she's nowhere near as good. I mean, she's nowhere near as good as her mum. Or indeed, she's not as good a performer as Ronald Reagan is. So she goes to Hollywood and she gets in with uh, the guy who's in charge of casting at MGM, who's called Benny Thau, who is regarded... <laughs> <laughs> he is regarded... He is the sultan of the casting couch. Is he? Yeah, I'm not sure whether Sultan is the word I was looking for, but he is the he's the king of the casting couch. The Khan of the casting couch. Khan of the casting couch. The great right. Khan of the casting couch. Okay. <laughs> okay. He's the great Khan. He's the despot of the casting couch. And um it was later very ungallantly said of Nancy that she had basically slept her way to a contract. Um I don't know whether that's true or not. There's definitely a perception of her from the very beginning that she's incredibly ambitious. And she's a bit of a woman on the make. And she obviously identifies, you know, Ron Reagan uh, in his capacity as the head of the Screen Actors Guild because she has accidentally been put on not a blacklist, but a kind of a grey list mm-hmm. as people with kind of lefty sympathies, which, which she absolutely doesn't. <laughs> no. And uh, she contacts him and says, please take my, make, you know, use your influence to get my name off this list. And they end up going for dinner and, you know, one thing leads to another. And she, unlike Jane Wyman, Loves listening to Ronnie wang on. About the Reed's Digest. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. And she just kind of gazes up at him adoringly, doesn't she? I think she absolutely does. She absolutely does. So she puts pressure on him, I think, to get married. Uh, she's pregnant when they get married. So it's February 1952. She falls pregnant and they get married in March. And really interesting and a real surprise for me is that before they choose the date, they consult an astrologer, Carol Reiter, the astrologer to the stars. And um, and it's Reagan who pushes that. Yeah, it's, so it's not. Everyone thinks that Nancy is kind of you know um, 
enthralled by astrology. But actually, she embraces it because Ronald Reagan is already into astrology, as a lot of Hollywood stars are in the 50s. You know, that, that Vogue, everyone now has a therapist, don't they, in Hollywood? Mm. Well, everyone had an ast- went to see the astrologer in those days. I mean, maybe they were getting into therapy as well. So, so wasn't Nancy into it before she met Reagan? Do you think? I'm not sure that she was. I mean, all the stuff about the astrology, which I had sort of imagined was cooked up. I'd always thought it was exaggerated by Kitty Kelly. And um, I mean, Don Regan, who was Reagan's chief of staff in the mid 80s, he said, oh, Nancy plans everything with her astrologer. And I sort of thought, oh, that's just gossip and sour grapes. But it's absolutely not. Mm. I mean, the, the astrology, they take, they take it terribly seriously. They consult um, astrologers when they're kind of putting on their trousers or something. So yeah, they get married. Uh, but in some ways, Reagan looks like a bad investment from her point of view because his film career is pretty much dead by this point, 1952. There's no call for his kind of, I mean, he's a bit old. He's in the, his 40s. He's not playing the best friend, the hero's best friend anymore. So is this when he goes to Vegas? He go, he does go to Vegas and he hates it. He absolutely hates it. Going to Vegas and sort of doing a turn. Because it's seen as a mark of failure because he's he's kind of hosting cabaret shows. Exactly, things, hosting he? cabaret. He does a two-week stint, I think it is, and he really doesn't like it at all. It really, it, it, he thinks it's tawdry. He thinks humiliating. it's humiliating. And it's at this point, or, or pretty much at this point, that he is approached. He is pre- as, in his capacity at the Screen Actors Guild, he had done a deal to allow his own agency, MCA, to move into TV production. Previously, agencies were not allowed to get involved with TV production. He brokers a deal. And about a year or so later, uh, two years later, MCA come to him. His, his, this guy called Taft Schreiber comes <laughs> to him and says, we've had an offer for you, and I think this is perfect. So General Electric are sponsoring a program called General Electric Theater. It's been running off and on, but they really want to invest in it. They want to make it a weekly thing, and they need a host. So basically, MCA clients will appear on TV in a series. It's an anthology. They'll appear in a series of plays. And you know we think it will be a ratings topper, be a massive hit, and General Electric are going to put in a lot of money. Um, we need a host to do a two-minute introduction to give it a sense of coherence. But also the host must be a goodwill ambassador for General Electric. So there will be a lot of work touring General Electric plants, giving speeches, meeting the workers, being the kind of face of General Electric. You see, when I read about this, I had not understood that 30 Rock, the Tina Fey yeah. sitcom yeah. about a um, comedy show, and it's, it's all owned by General Electric. And I, had no, I, I never understood why what General Electric were doing right. involved in a, in a kind of comedy show. Yeah. But now I understand. So it's obviously a kind of long-running tradition in America. Yes. In the, so yeah. the firm would sponsor the show. If the firm walked away, the, the show ends. That's where you know, the money for the show is coming from. So General Electric are offering to pay Reagan $125,000 a year. That's the equivalent of $3 million a year today, I would say. And General Electric have a really, really sort of ruthless and cunning attitude towards um, advertising and, and getting their message across. So <laughs> you talk about people having excellent names. The man running their ad account is called Earl Dunkel, um, but the real guiding spirit and manager in charge of their labor relations is Lemuel Bulware. Yes. And, and Bulwareism, is, <laughs> as it's called, right. involves basically you use your own workers as the advert for your company. You persuade your own workers of the virtue of your company. So in other words, bulwarism was 
You persuade your workers that government and intervention and regulation have gone too far, that free enterprise is the American way, free market, all this stuff, anti-communism and low taxes. And so by this time, Reagan is, is buying into this. Oh, yes. 1952 is the first time he votes Republican, right? Eisenhower. Yeah. And he felt a little bit bad about it because his father was a, had always been such a keen Democrat. And that he actually says at the time, there are things about Adley Stevenson, the Democratic candidate that I quite like. However, it sort of makes sense that Reagan is moving rightwards. He is rich. All his friends in Hollywood, the people that he hangs out with, as we were saying before, they're quite right-wing. Nancy is quite right-wing. But also he's reading, as you said, the Reader's Digest. He's also become absolutely addicted to a periodical called Human Events, um, which is, which is again, very, very firmly right-wing. So he's being radicalized by... Mid-market magazines. Yes, he actually is. And he, when he goes to General Electric, that radicalizes him further. And he, by the way, the, the interesting thing is not the two-minute introductions to the episodes, it's the tours, because he turns out to be absolutely brilliant at it. He will go to the plant. There is a wonderful description of this in... Um, Bob Spitz. Bob Spitz, Bob Spitz. But also other writers, so Gary Wills wrote about this in his book, Reagan's America, Innocence at Home in the 80s, that General Electric was the key to Reagan. As Bob Spitz describes it, Reagan goes into the plant, and at first people are sort of staring at him. And his technique is he will usually talk to the, to the women because they're delighted to see a, a Hollywood matinee idol, you know, a film star. Mm -hmm. And the men are a little bit suspicious. And then after he's talked to the women and they've all sort of gushed over him, he then goes over to the men and he makes a few jokes. He tells them a few jokes about the women often. Um, and he puts the men at their ease and very, very quickly they get into kind of banter and gossip and he tells Hollywood stories. He's one of the boys. He has this film star glamour, of course. He's tanned and he's tall and, and whatnot, but he has such an affable, down to earth manner. He's brilliant at putting people at their ease. He's one of the guys. He's one absolutely boys. one of the boys. Absolutely. And then as part of this, he gives after dinner speeches. So General Electric start to organize. He'll talk to the Rotary Club or the Chamber of Commerce or or whatever, and the and the speeches that he gives are he'll start with some jokes and some Hollywood anecdotes and be self-deprecating, and then he'll start talking a little bit about politics, not in an excessively partisan way. So, in other words, if you're a Democrat, you can still enjoy it, but he'll say things that lots of people kind of agree with in a slightly kind of golf clubby, you know, mm -hmm. men at the bar kind of yeah. way. He'll say. We pay a lot of taxes and what do we get for them? You know, those people in Washington, they're all the same. Don't you just love our country and you hate people running it down? Communism, we've got to stand up to that. You know, he'll come out with all this sort of stuff. And most people will just nod and say, this is great. And what Reagan does that is brilliant, and he gets this from Reader's Digest and, and whatnot, is he wraps it up in parables and little stories. His increasingly right-wing convictions, are they any more sophisticated than... Oh, it's terrible. They're taking all our tax. You know, they're taking too much tax. Commies, they're awful. Does he, does he have a kind of a more sophisticated understanding of geopolitics, of, of how the economy works or anything? Or is it just kind of gut, this is what I think? Well, it's not just completely empty because he's reading these periodicals. Right. So he's but, got but, loads but, of... But it's not, I mean, it's not the Wall Street Journal, is it? No, and he's not reading Edmund Burke. Yeah. I mean, he's not pondering the, whether Viscount Bolingbroke was the real father of, you know, intellectual conservatism. No, but he's not reading, I don't know, um, strategic analysis <laughs> no, from no, no, top geopoliticians no. or anything. He's not Margaret Thatcher reading Hayek or yeah. Dostoevsky. He's absolutely not that at all. And nor is he ever reading anything that would possibly contradict him. 
So he's reading things that confirm his, I was going to say prejudices, that's the wrong word. They confirm all his instincts. And that is kind of the key, isn't it? That is the key. That he doesn't need to kind of, I mean, so often politicians um, whose opinions are kind of informed by detailed study or academic study or whatever, they have to kind of lower it down a grade when they're kind of making their pitch. And so it sounds condescending or bogus or false or hypocritical. Yes. Whereas Reagan never had to do that because he is simply articulating what he feels. Absolutely. And his, you know, his, his radio frequency is the radio frequency of so many of his listeners. Brilliant way of putting it, Tom. Actually, I think it's exactly the right way of putting it. I think there's nothing contrived about it. Um, he, he reads up all the stuff. He has all the facts. He has all the stories to back up what he believes. It's as you say, it's what a lot of other people believe in the 1950s. So the funny thing is, this is Eisenhower's America. So it's definitely not a kind of socialist state by any means. Right. Yeah. But there's, but there is a sense left over, I think, from antipathy to the New Deal that, you know, the government is regulating a lot, that too much, we're paying too much tax, don't like communism, don't like interference, all these kinds of things. And Reagan is brilliant at articulating them. As you say, it, it's not, you know, he's not kind of Ed Miliband. He hasn't been yeah. pouring over policy yeah. documents. Or indeed, m- Margaret Thatcher. No, it's not Margaret Thatcher either. What it is, he is, a, he is absolutely, he has an extraordinary gift to bring these things alive through human stories and to create a sense of empathy with his audience. Um, and, and his affable, charming manner means that even people who don't necessarily agree with him still like him and, and enjoy the performance, actually. Yeah. I mean, not everybody, of course, but all the time he's becoming more right-wing. So I think it's, it's not static. So he's being radicalized. He's talking to plant managers who say to him, well, the government red tape stops us. Do-. You know, because he visits 135 plants, I think, in the first year or two, in 25 states, 200,000 employees he shakes hands with. Extraordinary. The weird thing is that there's actually quite a parallel there with Gorbachev, who was kind of doing the same thing. Yeah, Gorbachev goes around plants. Yes, he does. But Reagan is doing it in such a, such a systematic way. I mean, it's extraordinary. He's being exposed. There are so many people, actually, by the time he runs for president, who have, I mean, there are obviously a lot of people who've seen him in films, but there are so many people who would have met him at these, or who would know people who would have met him at these General, General Electric employ a quarter of a million people. And probably all of them have seen Reagan at some point. So he's being driven rightwards. General Electric get him this amazing house, actually, in um, Pacific yeah. Palisades in California. Yeah. Full of gizmos. <laughs> Full of, so he has the General Electric house. So he has a sort of swimming pool with under with underwater lights. And don't and they have to install a massive generator because it requires... <laughs> otherwise, it would so it's actually short sound, circuit the whole of Los Angeles. It actually sounds, it actually sounds quite annoying in some ways. So yeah. things like all the curtains are open by remote controls. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I, I assume that there's some ginormous control room or keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> he has three fridges and two ovens. You very rarely need three fridges and two ovens, do you? I mean, I, I don't I know. Yeah. Maybe they do a lot of maybe they do a lot of catering. <laughs> there is a definite tension, I think, emerging with General Electric because they don't want him to be too right wing. So by the end of the 1950s, he definitely has become radicalized because when JFK becomes president in 1960, Reagan he says, well. Kennedy is just offering Marxism. Yeah. You know, Kennedy is a Marxist. And at that yeah. point, you sort of say, oh, <laughs> that's not quite your sort of standard middle of the road Republican position. 
there's another very funny index of it. And I really don't need to tell you because this is your mastermind subject. But um, in 1952, Reagan's view on Nixon, who's running as Eisenhower's vice president, is uh, is very negative and describes him as less than honest. And he is an ambitious opportunist, completely undeserving of the high honor accorded him. Yeah. Not, not, not inaccurate. And then in um, 1960, when Nixon is running against Kennedy, oh, he wasn't the villain I thought him to be. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And of course, as time goes on, Reagan starts to think that Nixon is actually possibly a, a bit not right-wing enough. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Bit of a commie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so he's definitely, he then is further enraged because I mentioned earlier that um, Reagan, when he was running the acting union, had brokered this deal with for MCA, his agency, to get involved in TV production, which a lot of people thought was a very dodgy arrangement. And the Kennedy administration, the Justice Department, look into this, and they're being run by Robert Kennedy. And Reagan develops this absolutely obsessive hatred of Robert Kennedy, who he blames for you know everything that's sort of going wrong for him. Because about this point, General Electric Theater's ratings start to decline. They're being beaten by Bonanza. <laughs> yeah. And and this is absolutely normal. I mean, this is what happens. You know, a show is it, they've had a really good run, you know, eight years or so, and now they're going into decline. Well, it's it's uh, it's competition, isn't it? It's capitalism. It it's, is. Uh, it's what right wing Republicans are all in favour of. And and um, General Electric think, well, Ron Reagan, he's getting a bit old. He's very right wing. He's a bit of a liability because he's also released a, a, a record. Have you seen this? An LP. No. Ronald Reagan speaks out against socialized medicine. <laughs> it's not a song. It's not musical. Oh, imagine him crooning to that. <laughs> yeah. Crooning about the dangers of yeah. socialized medicine. The sort of point. General Electric think. They say to him very politely, you know, we will, the show is coming to an end. We'd love to have you stay on as an ambassador. So they, they're, they're going to treat him properly. He's offended by that. He says, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm still a book. Because, Deep down, I think there's still a part of Reagan that wishes he was um, still in Hollywood. I mean, his last film, The Killers, I um, mean, that's early 1960s. So there's still a bit of him that hankers for doing that. And he plays a, a thug in that, doesn't he? He does, yeah, very much against his better instincts. See, this is the thing. He doesn't like playing the thug because he wants to always play himself. He has to pretend to beat up Angie Dickinson, who is he does. reputedly one of Kennedy's really? paramours. Golly, there's something... Great metaphor there. Yeah, deep waters there. So he ends up hosting a lesser show sponsored by a company called US Borax called Death Valley Days. Is this the one that's been procured for him by Moon, his brother? Uh, I think it might be. Yes, I think it might because Moon becomes an advertising man, isn't he? With McCann Erickson, I think. But it's at this point that politics calls. So that that, um, speech that you did so brilliantly, I have to say, Tom. Thank you. Thank you, Dominic. In a different league from your Marilyn Monroe or, or indeed your Sopranos, uh, renditions that you've done on previous episodes of The Rest is History. Thank you. So 1964, uh, the Republicans nominate Barry Goldwater uh, for president. <laughs> Barry Goldwater is from Arizona. And he's really a libertarian rather than a conservative. I mean, Barry Goldwater is an f- absolutely fascinating man because he's very, very um, – he appears to be very much a man of the, of the hard right. And yet, actually, he's in favor of gay rights. He's in favor of drug liberalization. He's in fa- he supports abortion. Uh, he has all. He's actually a member of the NAACP, the Civil Rights Organization, but he opposes civil rights legislation because he doesn't like 
federal government overreach. And also, the the, the, da- the unfortunate thing for him is that it seems like he's in favour of nuclear war. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, which is... Yes, at one point he says, know. he makes a he makes a series of gaffes. So he says he'd like to throw it, he'd like to lob one into the men's room at the Kremlin. <laughs> yeah. which is, and he has he has the slogan, in your right, you know, in, in your heart, you know he's right. And yeah. the riposte is, in your guts, you know he's nuts. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's on a hiding to nothing a year after the Kennedy assassination running against Lyndon Johnson. And a lot of moderate Republicans, so not so much Nixon, but kind of what Rockefeller Republicans, Nelson Rockefeller, who's the sort of the bigwig from New York, he'd been the, he was the sort of poster boy for liberal Republicans. And they all absolutely, you know, they, they thought Goldwater was a, a lunatic. Uh, Reagan obviously doesn't, and nor crucially do a load of Californian businessmen. So uh, this guy called... <laughs> Holmes Tuttle. Um, <laughs> of course there is. Yeah. So he handles kind of forward car sales. There's a load of others. Henry Salvatore, who's oil. Cy Rubel is oil. Justin Dart is drugstores. So these are Californian businessmen, entrepreneurs. They are very suspicious of the kind of East Coast, very suspicious of Washington. They want lower taxes. They want less regulation, all these kinds of things. And it's Tuttle. He, he books a slot, a fundraiser at the Ambassador Hotel in um, L.A., very famous kind of cabaret nightclub room they have called Coconut Grove. Um, so the Ambassador Hotel is where Robert Kennedy ends up being shot in 1968. But they book this slot and they get Reagan to come in and do the talk. And of course, what you did, your rendezvous with destiny, what precedes that is just Reagan's standard General Electric talk, really. Low taxes, communism is evil. Barry Goldwater is a decent man who's going to, you know, roll back the federal government, all of this stuff. And he, he does it really superbly. He does it because so well. Because he's been auditioning for it for uh, yeah, a decade. Exactly. Yeah. And he's got all the Reader's Digest facts. Yeah. And he does it brilliantly. And they say, golly, it's so good. We will, we will buy half an hour TV time for the Goldwater campaign as long as they put on Reagan. And actually, some of the Goldwater people say, could we not actually put on Goldwater? Gold- <laughs> <laughs> no, because he's uh, They say, no, 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 it has to be, <laughs> has to be Reagan. And he, he does it on TV. You can see it on YouTube. Um, it's, a, it's a very, you know, it's, it, it's pure, undiluted kind of Goldwater Reaganism, but it's brilliantly delivered. But if you had the sound turned down and you didn't know he's giving a talk, you could imagine it, a kind of Frank Sinatra croon. You could, yeah. That's the vibe. Yeah. He commands the stage. He has a sort of emollient, mellifluous manner. Yeah, he's he's very earnest. He's very convincing. I agree. He could be. It could be a sort of Sinatra-style performance. And so, basically, people watch that and think, actually, Reagan would be better than Goldwater. They do. And is this the moment where people start thinking he could one day be president? He could perhaps, you know, before that, be governor of California. Is this well, governor where of California? Could- certainly, absolutely, they do. They they look at uh, Reagan. So another Hollywood actor, George Murphy. Um, he's elected to the Senate uh, from California. So the idea of a Hollywood actor mm. going into politics is not automatically ludicrous. Plus, everything Reagan has done has been excellent training for a political campaign. Yeah. His general electric plant visits, I mean, they're nothing if not campaign appearances. Yeah. Shaking hands, a few jokes, Bad handing. Yeah. a little bit of a political chat, and then off you go, goodbye. I mean, it's the most brilliant preparation for the challenge of any form of gubernatorial or presidential or whatever. Plus, it's not like he's just a front man because, you know, when they... He when has he sits, deeply held prejudices. <laughs> right. He has very <laughs> deeply held convictions. When he sits around with 
Holmes Tuttle or whoever it might be. <laughs> chewing the fat. Yeah, chewing the fat. I mean, he he feels it just as strongly as they do and he knows all the stuff. So he's a he's a it's an obvious choice. So they come to him, nineteen sixty five or so, and they say, We've formed a group called the Friends of Ronald Reagan, and we would like you to run for governor of California. Okay. Well I think Uh, That's a perfect point to take a break. When we come back, we will look at um, Reagan's governorship and then the road to the presidency. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest. With BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com slash rest is history. Hello, welcome back to the rest is history. Dominic, end of part one. You got us to the friends of Ronald Reagan gearing up to, to have their man. Uh, run for the governorship of California in 1966. Is that right? 66, yeah. 66. Um, so the, the, the 60s are really starting to swing. Uh, California is one of the global epicenters of that. It's home of hippies and yeah. student protests and all that kind of thing. Um, meanwhile, Reagan is going in a very opposite direction. All the kind of the stuff that we associate with 1960s California, is that very much a minority interest? I think, well, every action provokes an equal and opposite reaction, I suppose you would say, Tom. So you're absolutely right that there's that scene in San Francisco. There are free speech protests at universities or um, filthy speech protests, as as Reagan calls them. There's growing disquiet about the Vietnam War. The 60s sort of pop culture has is beginning to take that turn towards hippie, hippiness. And, I mean, that, that sort of peaks in 1967 with the Summer of Love. You know, the, the parks in San Francisco full of people with flowers in their hair and whatnot. There, there's an enormous number of people in California, sort of suburban, middle class, working class people who, who don't buy into all that whatsoever. I mean, these are Reagan is brilliant at reaching them. Um, so there are, there are all these suburbs, particularly in Southern California, where there are people who have moved in from elsewhere. So they've moved in from the Midwest, like Reagan, actually, or they've moved from Texas or Oklahoma. So they bring with them con- quite conservative attitudes. They've got, they've started churches there. They, they meet at kind of coffee mornings and they, you know, there's this sort of nascent conservative movement in particularly Southern California. Orange County is the place that people always point to, which is just outside Los Angeles. So that's all kind of getting started. But also California has been run by a guy called Pat Brown, Edmund G. Brown, who is a 
he's a kind of classic, you know, if a Hollywood casting agency had to supply a kind of Irish pole, he is the man. And again and again through this story, this is something that comes up. The casting agents, they, they look like they've been supplied by casting agency. Yeah. So, and Pat Brown absolutely looks like, I mean, he's a tremendous fellow in lots of ways. Two-term governor, he's, he's basically one of the people who, who's made modern California. He has spent loads of money. I mean, arguably too much money as Reagan will discover. So they've been, they're running a big deficit, but they've built schools and universities. universities and all of these things. They've really built the infrastructure of modern California, but he's been in for two terms. There's a sense, particularly among these sort of these quite quite conservative middle class suburban uh, parts of the population, that there's too much waste, the taxes are too high. There's disquiet, of course, about racial unrest because you've had things like Watts, you've had um, the civil. It's not that the civil rights movement has sort of turned sour or anything, but there have been a wave of urban riots that alarm kind of suburban white homeowners. This is sort of an, a, a, um, a dark turn, I suppose you would say. So in the first episode, we talked about how Reagan's father had been very, very opposed to any hint of racial prejudice. Yes. And this was kind of late 20s, early 30s. How, has Reagan's attitude to this evolved? No, I would say. In a kind of rightwards way. I mean, what's his, what's his attitude to the, the kind of the racial tensions in California at this time? This is a very fraught subject and much sort of discussed by Reagan biographers and historians. Reagan himself doesn't seem to have had any personal prejudice at all. There's a very famous incident when he's at Eureka College. There are two black young men on the team. They turn up to play somewhere and this turns out to be segregated. And Reagan says, we're not actually that far from my home, from Dixon, I assume he's living in that point. He says, "Um, I'll take these two guys home with me and we'll stay at my house. And people have often sort of said, well, there you go. Reagan's not racist at all. I think what is probably fair to say is that Reagan is always, he, he dislikes the idea of the federal government intervening in kind of civil rights. So he thinks it should be left to the states. This is part of his sort of small governmentism, I think. But it's also true to say that from the late 60s onwards, to get ahead in Republican politics as the Republican Party becomes more southernized and starts to rely very heavily on southern white voters the dog whistle as it were is never far away and the one thing that reagan is already doing at this stage is he's telling parables about people who are clearly black so the most famous parable that he tells is the welfare queen she says there's a woman in chicago with 80 names 30 addresses 12 social security cards collecting veterans benefits and four dead husbands uh she has a tax-free cash income of one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and he never says it but the understanding of all his listeners is that this person is black. Now, this person, by the way, doesn't exist, or at least doesn't exist to the degree that he describes. And this parable seems to, to, to Reagan's critics, this parable is a kind of dog whistle to say, black people on welfare, you know, taking your taxes, let's, you know, cut down on this. Do you think also, I mean, a common thing about people from um, very poor backgrounds who become very successful, they often say, well, I've done it. So yes, anyone can do yeah. it. And in America, the, you know, the whole idea of the president coming from a log cabin, the American dream, all that kind of stuff. I mean, you said, you know, Reagan has come from um, a culturally very white background. Um, and so he hasn't grown up with an awareness of the, the way perhaps in which um, black Americans have far more obstacles to overcome. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I mean, is it the case that by the 60s, he's looking oh, around and saying, well, I've made it. 
why can't all these black people who are rioting, yeah. why aren't they getting out there and pulling themselves up by their bootstraps? I mean, is that his, his take? Undoubtedly. If you said to him, I mean, there, was a, there are a couple of quotes. I think there's something on the Nixon tapes when he's talking about uh, African countries criticizing the United States, and he uses the word monkeys to describe the, um, the African kind of leaders or something. But there aren't really, I mean, there, are, there aren't, apart from that aside, there are not loads of smoking guns to say Reagan deep down is is a sort of is a vicious racist. But he's not failing to check his white privilege, as uh, the as kids the, might as, put it. As now. the youth would say, um, I think it's fair to say that he is instinctively hostile to any form of federal intervention on behalf of not just African Americans but yeah. also the poor generally. I yeah. think and 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 blind. A lot of people would say he's just blind to this issue. And he is also his. He, he is willing, and his advisors are willing where necessary. And we'll see it when he runs for the presidency in 1980, with a very famous campaign appearance that he made. He is willing to, as it were, show a bit of leg to people whose views on race are definitely not progressive at all. So he he wins the Republican nomination to yeah. to run for the governorship, and then he wins the governorship itself. Yes, and this this is all going on while hippies are putting flowers in the guns of the National yeah. Guard and all that kind of stuff. He does a pass an abortion bill, but he deeply regrets it. Therapeutic abortion bill, right? Which is actually at the time some of the most liberal abortion legislation in the nation. California has some of the most liberal abortion. But Reagan comes to regret it, doesn't he? Well, Tom, this is the essence of of Reagan as an operator. What makes him so fascinating? He says he regrets it later on, but he still signs it. Yeah. Okay. And Reagan, what makes him so interesting as a political operator is the, is the contrast between the very hard hitting rhetoric and the sort of human events, readers digest view of the world with the fact that in California, for example, he turns out to be a very pragmatic kind of center-right governor. And everybody who studied his period, as you know, from Lou Cannon, who wrote the first really great books about Reagan onwards, Ewan Morgan, all Reagan's biographers, they all say about Reagan in California, he was actually a pretty good governor. So what legislation, what, what does he do? I mean, what are his signature? He spends a lot of money on schools. He agrees a uh, deficit reduction plan with the Democratic-dominated legislature that sees taxes go up in California across the board by about a billion dollars. Um, so taxes up, not down. He introduces controls on um, sort of car pollution. Uh, he's very environmental, actually. He blocks a dam. He blocks a highway. Oh, that that's would right. Go doesn't over. He, goes, he, he rides up, doesn't he, to... Um yeah, to a mountain ridge that they want to blast away, and and he goes um, on his horse, takes the yeah, press, go, and he's on his yeah. horse, and he says, "How would you want to destroy all this? You know, the yeah. highway must stop." All these kinds of things, because he's surrounded by. I mean, this is where he learns how to govern. Because when he arrives, he says, "I've never played a governor. I don't know what to do." Yeah, and he has an advisor called Bill Clark, who works out how they're going to do it. He works out a, 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 a thing that's later much mocked by Reagan's critics of mini, what's called mini memos. So basically, when you give Reagan a piece of paper, it must be just a page, and it's four paragraphs. Paragraph one says, what's the problem? Paragraph two is a bit of background. Paragraph three are, here are the options. And paragraph four is, this is what we should do. And he says, this is how we will present information to the governor. He doesn't want too much. He's not Margaret Thatcher, who wants every possible piece yeah. of paper and is going to go through them all till five o'clock in the morning. Reagan just wants to make a decision straight away and have it all boiled down. And with smart people around him, you know, pragmatic people, he actually proves very good at kind of pulling the levers, working with the legislature. He wins re-election in um, 1970. 
So actually, he he is famous for. I mean, the most famous thing he probably says in his whole governorship is when he's mocking hippies and he says, "The definition of a hippie is somebody who what's it looks like Tarzan, uh, walks like Jane, and smells like cheetah." Right. And of course, the the hippie movement, the counterculture, gives him the perfect opposition. But I suppose what I would say about that is Reagan is a hate figure for them, and he does criticize them, attack them, and all the rest of it. But there is a kind of humor, a wry edge to it. You know, he's actually, Reagan is not actually a politician who's very good at peddling hate, as it were. You know, so he likes being inclusive and being well-liked and being funny and, and all those kinds of things, which makes him such a good salesman, of course, for conservative ideology. Right. Okay. And so this is the, um, going into the 70s, this is the Nixon presidency, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Nixon's won his second term. So he will, you know, if he serves out his term, yeah. that will be him done. And so Reagan, by this point, must be thinking, this is my chance. Definitely. But then Watergate happens, and that means that Nixon gets succeeded by his vice president, Gerald Ford, Ford, on whom Reagan had commentated as a sportscaster back in the days when Ford had played college football and and Reagan had commentated on him. Although he's later famous for falling off aeroplanes and Chevy Chase would impersonate him falling over, Ford was probably the greatest athlete to have ever been president. He's a very good golfer, wasn't he? As president? He's good at everything. I mean, he's a really, really good footballer. Could have been professional. So this, this messes things up for Reagan. Definitely it does. Definitely. But Ford is vulnerable. So Ford definitely wants to run again in 1976, but Reagan can challenge him. There are all sorts of weaknesses. They've just, you know, Vietnam falls in 1975. The economy is in a pretty poor condition post um, oil shock of 1973. So there's a recession. They're also getting a lot of flack for detente. So Nixon and then Ford, with Henry Kissinger at their side, have pursued a policy of detente with the Soviet Union, which hardcore anti-communists don't like at all. Also, politics is obviously becoming increasingly about style, about what people today call vibes. Mm-hmm. And Ford does not have the correct vibes for the new right, for the conservative movement, because he's a sort of old-fashioned Republican. I mean, he still does smoke a pipe. At his country club. Yeah, at his country club. He's very Rust Belt, Michigan. Yeah. So he doesn't have the same appeal to the new emerging Sun Belt. So that's the South and the Southwest, these these areas where massive population growth, new conservatism, air conditioning, so lots of new factories coming in, anti-union, very religious. Reagan can reach those people and Ford can't. So Reagan decides he will challenge Ford. And it's actually the one time Reagan is a serial winner, but the only person who ever really beats him is Ford. Is Ford. Because he loses those that run for the for the Republican nomination. He does. He does. He finds a couple of lines that work very well for him. So one is is attacks on Henry Kissinger and this stuff about being number two in the world. I mean, he'll bring that out again in 1980. So he says, we have been relegated to number two in the world. We're America. We can never be number two in the world. So that's one thing. The other thing is an issue that's now completely forgotten, which is the Panama Canal. So yes, the United States is very France in... (laughs) 1890 kind of stuff. It is. But the Panama Canal is a massive, massive issue among kind of grassroots conservatives in the 1970s. So Ford and then later Jimmy Carter are going to agree a deal to basically turn the Panama Canal over to Panama because the Panamanians are pressing very vigorously for it. And Reagan develops this line. He develops it in the Florida primary in 1976 and then used it throughout the rest of the, the, the primary season. We bought it. We paid for it, we built it, and we're going to keep it. 
and people love that. You know, they're kind of people hey. with blue hair are kind of yeah. ladies with blue hair are whooping and stetsons in the air. Throwing, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the institutional advantages for Ford as president are too great. Plus, Reagan is a little, he, he says silly things. So there's a point at which he says he's going to cut the federal budget um, by, uh, what is it, something like $90 billion. And so, for, for example, retirees in Florida who depend on Social Security, on, on the go- sort of government-backed pensions, effectively, um, they're horrified by this. So he sort of lo- he frightens voters. He hasn't found a way of, of sort of diluting or presenting his, his Reader's Digesty yeah. kind of view. Of the world. Well, he also, um, he almost chokes to death on a peanut. That's true. He's, yes. He kind of throws a peanut up in the air and catches it like a, like a seal or something. Yeah. Um, and uh, almost chokes to death. And I guess that Nazi's astrologer would say that this was a, a portent because the person who actually wins the 76 presidential election is a peanut farmer. Is Jimmy Carter. Candidate Jimmy Carter. So Gerald Ford loses. And so that presumably then the dream stays alive. Even Absolutely. though Reagan is pretty old by this point, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. He's, 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 so he would 60s, be the oldest yeah. president at this point. Yes, so he's sixty-eight, I think, when he runs in nineteen eighty. He he dodges a peanut, as it were, in nineteen seventy-six. So one of his biographers, Ewan Morgan, British historian, very great scholar, uh, says of Reagan: Had Reagan won the nomination in nineteen seventy-six, it's hard to imagine him beating Carter. Carter is the outsider. There's a lot of revulsion about Watergate, but also Carter is very strong in the South. Carter's yeah. the first Southerner for generations to win the and White Carter House. Carter has a kind of, chi- at, at that point, has a kind of, you know, big smile. Yes. Positive vibes, all that kind of he stuff. He hasn't yet been attacked by his killer rabbit or worn his cardigan <laughs> or collapsed yeah. jogging or any of those things. A, a fascinating thing about Carter and Reagan is that Carter, it's a bit like, well, we've talked about this a few times in the rest of history, the underlying continuities of history beneath kind of partisan politics and partisan struggles. So Carter runs against Washington in 1976. Carter describes himself as a citizen politician, just an ordinary American, not a career politician, he says, which is what Reagan had said in California. Carter is in favor of lower taxes and deregulation, and in fact starts the move towards deregulation, which Reagan then inherits. Carter is a Southerner, and, and American politics is becoming Southernized. So it's not just that the South is becoming more and more important, but kind of Southern values, the kind of family, church, flag, uh, the army, the military, all these things, they are becoming more and more popular among blue-collar voters generally. Carter is obviously a Baptist, you know, an evangelical Christian, the first person, the first overtly evangelical Christian to, to win the presidency again in, in generations. So there are lots of ways in which Carter actually sort of anticipates Reagan. I don't think Reagan probably would have beaten Carter in 1976. So Reagan has dodged the bullet, as it were. But then in the next four years, lots of things go wrong for Carter. So the Iranian revolution is the most obvious example of that. There's an energy crisis. I take quite a disobliging view of Carter as president. I think he's not a very good president by any stretch of the imagination. I think he gets lots of things, makes a lot of missteps. I mean, the wor- single worst thing he does is probably an air of negativity. So he talk- gives a very famous speech in the middle of 1979 about there's a profound malaise affecting the American people. And it's all very gloomy. And Carter is always telling people, you know, don't waste electricity, turn off the lights. I mean, we might say from the vantage point of 
2023 that these are very sensible suggestions. Meanwhile, Reagan with his 10 fridges. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. yes. oh, let's get another Nancy. But also Carter, <laughs> Carter does things like, uh, Carter turns all off the lights at the White House at Christmas to save electricity. Yeah. He, he sort of swans around in his, in his, he wants to be an ordinary person. So he wears his cardigan and there's no grandeur, there's no optimism about Carter. And so what Reagan offers is cheery optimism and Hollywood glamour. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I can see how, how that would be effective. And all the trends as well are in Reagan's favour. So I said about the sort of the growth of the sunbelt and southernization, but also Reagan has a new constituency at the end of the 80s that he didn't really have before, which is the Christian right. So the moral majority, people like that. And it, and it seems weird in some ways to people. It's, it anticipates the slight um, bewilderment with which some people regard their adoption of Donald Trump. People say Reagan is this... A, Holly, a, div, a Hollywood divorcee. Yeah, because Carter would be a more obvious... Of course. Reagan goes around telling dirty jokes. Yeah. He has, he has. what did he call his, the string of girls? Uh, the Cocker Spaniels. The Cocker Spaniels in his past, you know. But to, to be fair to Reagan, I mean, he, he is as devout a Christian as um, Jimmy Carter, I guess. And um, he's very monogamous yeah. by nature, he seems, actually. So there is material there for the Christian right to work with. They love his anti-communism. They love his, his fervent patriotism. They're really driven into the Reagan's embrace because under Carter, the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, announced that they're going to start taxing private schools that are what they are called segregation academies. So there's been a huge explosion of private schools that have been formed to appeal to parents who are horrified by the desegregation of Southern schools. Right. So rich racists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's, I suppose that's, well, I mean, it's not just rich, actually. Okay. I mean, these, these schools becoming extremely, extremely popular in the South. And the IRS says, if you don't show that you have a site, you know, that you're reflecting the, the sort of racial makeup of your, of your state or whatever, then we will, you will no longer be tax exempt. And this absolutely enrages a lot of the sort of churches that are behind these schools. It means they fall out sort of terminally with Jimmy Carter. And, they are, and Reagan has a brilliant way of reaching them. He, he goes to the religious round table in 1980, this big meeting of all the sort of evangelical bigwigs. And he says to them, I know you can't endorse me, but I want you to know that I endorse you and what you're doing. Masterly. And everyone's like, hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. what a tremendous fellow, all this. So yeah, he wins the Republican. He's, he's been hanging around in the 70s writing. He's been on the radio. I mean, the, Reagan is a master of the radio. If you ever read... There's a book, I think it's called Reagan in His Own Hand or something like that, of all his radio scripts. He would have been a brilliant columnist. Well, he was a brilliant columnist. He wrote columns. He writes these five-minute scripts. They always start with a little story. You know, the other day I was in the supermarket and there was a man in front of me, big strapping lad. Yeah. You know, he bought 72 bags of shopping. <laughs> and then I couldn't help noticing that he paid for them with welfare stamps. And I said to myself, what am I doing wrong that this guy is on welfare yeah. and my taxes? Are- Your tax dollars are going on. Yeah. Right. Margaret Thatcher would not, even though she was actually quite good at populism, she wasn't anything like as good as that. So he has this way of sucking people in. He wins the Republican nomination. He beats George. George Bush is his big rival. There's still a bit of a doubt whether he is, um, he is too right wing. And and that's Carter's big hope, actually, because Carter's presidency has basically descended into an, an utter abyss in 1980. The hostages are still in Iran. 
killer rabbits are roaming the swamps of Florida. <laughs> right. It's garbage. <laughs> yeah. um, well, the economy is in recession. Uh, his new head of the Federal Reserve, a man called Paul Volcker, is a, is a sort of monetarist. His attitude is, well, we've got massive inflation, so let's whack up interest rates. So interest rates are heading towards 20%. The Soviet Union have invaded Afghanistan. All the news is bad as far as Carter is concerned. And the hostages is the worst of all. By far the worst. Because it's a kind of protracted nightly on nightly on the news horror show and they were taken a, a year to the day before the 1980 presidential election on the 4th of november 1979 there's 52 of them and carter himself makes it a really big issue which is quite yeah. a foolish thing to do if you're not going to be able to get them out and he sends well he does this mission to try and rescue them yeah, with the helicopters, helicopters they, 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 they crash um in the desert um it's an absolute disaster shambles and a disaster yeah i remember i remember um a news magazine with the awful the twisted bodies on the desert and the cup the wreckage of the helicopters yeah and the general sense that um not just carter's presidency but america itself was on a massive downward slide yes which yeah. obviously is playing into everything that reagan is, is oh, offering absolutely people. the thing about being number two in the world so the big doubt about reagan is is he too extreme are people just going to stick with what they know with carter and his cardigan at the last minute and Reagan launches his campaign after the convention. We, I said we'd get to this because it is very controversial. Bob Spitz doesn't mention it at all in his biography, and I wonder. I, I don't really know why. I think maybe it's too controversial or something. Reagan launches his campaign after the convention at a place called the Neshoba County Fair in Mississippi in front of 15,000 people. And this is very, very close to the site where three civil rights workers were murdered in 1964. A very famous and tragic incident, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner. Um, so they were killed by racists in 1964. And Reagan goes to this place and he gives this speech in which he says, I believe in states' rights. Now, you may, some listeners may say, well, what's wrong with that? You know, states versus the federal government. But in the context of the 60s and 70s, states' rights is often taken as shorthand for, I don't believe in civil rights. You know, I stand with the with the white South. So it's a dog whistle. So uh, people ever since have, have had massive, I mean, the massive arguments about whether or not it's a dog whistle. I think it's undoubtedly an attempt to appeal to white, rural, Southern voters, uh, many of whom will take that as saying, I stand with you and not the sort of black civil rights movement. So for some people, so at the time, some people definitely see that as a gaffe. And there were people, I mean, the test is his pollster, Richard Worthlin, said to him, please don't do this. You know, it's a it's a big mistake. But, you know, to succeed in politics, you have to have a, a bit of cynicism, I suppose. And there are other people um, who are saying to Reagan, Carter is a Southerner. Carter could be strong in the South. You have to go there and you have to do what you have to do to win those white Southern votes. Because he ends up winning 60% of the white Southern vote, a big factor in his in his eventual victory. And this cast a shadow. Yeah, so the shadow, the shadow over him is that... I mean that's that's quite a, sh a shadow. Yeah, and the other one is the, is the worry that he is too aggressive. But he dispels that quite nicely in the debate. So that's the other thing that he needs to dispel: the, the fear that he's a warmonger. And he does the debate. It's very late. It's just a week or so before the election. I think it's the twenty eighth of October against Carter. Carter had triumphed in the debates against Gerald Ford in seventy six. So Carter completely underestimates Reagan. He thinks Reagan's a, a muppet, yeah, a fool, mad really right wing and carter is very self-confident carter's got you know thousands and thousands of briefing books mm -hmm. on all the issues he never would 
sully himself with the Reader's Digest. He's Mr. I mean, Carter is such a control freak. Carter, the story goes that Carter used to handle their bookings to the White House <laughs> tennis court personally. You know, Carter is really a detail man. So he right. thinks I'll wipe the floor with Reagan. And actually, he's very aggressive, and Reagan is charming, affable. I mean, Carter disses him. Reagan just says, there you go again. And then Reagan has this brilliantly crafted peroration. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Do you feel we're as strong as we were four years ago? And there's no way you can answer those questions and say yes, because the Carter presidency has been a bit of a disaster. So the last, all those undecided voters of whom there were many, they break massively for Reagan. And he wins in the Electoral College by 489 to 49. Huge, you know, a huge landslide against a sitting president. What I always think is a fascinating little insight into Reagan's success is when he wins, so it's NBC, I think, that puts him over the top. They, they declare that Reagan has won. And the, the NBC announcer is a guy called John Chancellor. He says, uh, and so Ronald Wilson Reagan of California, a sports announcer, a film actor, <laughs> a governor of California, is to be the next president or whatever. But those three things, the sports announcer, the film actor, and then the California stuff. I mean, they're central. A lot of people always said, how is it possible that this guy who commentated on imaginary baseball games and then played the best friend in all these terrible films is president? But actually, it's because he did those things. Yeah. Don't completely. you think that these? Absolutely. Yeah. And then the General Electric. I mean, General Electric was massive. I mean, isn't the key fact that America in 1980 is quite depressed? about itself, about its prospects, about the way the world is going. And Reagan, not just in his personality, but in his backstory, seems a living embodiment of the best of America. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, the, the, he is a kind of embodiment of the American dream. And people are in a mood not to be cynical about that. Yeah. And so they vote for him. Absolutely. And so his presidency is born. And that, ladies and gentlemen, will be the subject of our third and final episode on Ronald Reagan. Uh, and if you simply can't wait, you know what you've got to do. Yeah. Apple Podcasts. You just go to Apple Podcasts and sign up. Or restishistorypod.com. That was uh, Ronald Reagan there advertising uh, <laughs> Rest is History Club. Because he also advertised Chesterfields, didn't he, despite not smoking? <laughs> he did. If you could advertise Chesterfields and General Electric, he could surely advertise the rest of his history, Tom, couldn't he? You, you want to listen to this. It's going to be great. All about my presidency. No commies. They're all commies. Listen to us. Reassuring, homely, homespun wisdom from Dominic Sandbrook, the sage of Middle England. Oh, God. Keep this stuff coming. I love it. All right. We will see you. We will see you next time. Bye-bye. God bless America. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 